Alrighty, so today I'm going to be talking about disorders of white blood cells to start off. So to begin for a little context, I'm going to discuss the developmental stages of blood cells. So we start with pluripotent stem cells that then differentiate into lymphoid stem cells and myeloid stem cells. So our lymphoid stem cells are going to become our T cells when they mature in the thymus. And then we'll also have B cells that will become um, memory B cells, regular B cells, and plasma cells. On the myeloid stem cell side, we're going to have our monocytes, our sinophils, neutrophils, basophils, um, our megakaryocytes that then become platelets, and also our erythrocytes. So we've got the lymphoid cells that become T cells and B cells, and then the myeloid stem cells that become pretty much everything else. <laughs> So starting off with a review of our white blood cells, we have our neutrophils. Neutrophils are the first responders, so when anything is going wrong, they're going to be the ones there first. They are phagocytic, they engulf invaders, and they also release proteases or proteolytic enzymes, in addition to recognizing and releasing cytokines. So those are going to be those messengers that coordinate the immune and inflammatory response, so really important function there. So when neutrophils are first responding to cytokines and they want to enter the tissue, they're going to become progressively more sticky by um, releasing, I believe, selectins. So they're going to be rolling along the vessel wall, so there'll be selectins and integrins involved there. They'll eventually fully stick to the endothelial cells before transmigrating, so um, traveling between them. So capillary walls will become slightly more permeable to allow this neutrophil to transmigrate. And then it'll continue to follow the cytokine signals until it reaches the antigen or the site of inflammation. Eosinophils, they function principally to ingest and kill multicellular parasites. So if we think eosinophils, we're thinking parasite. They're also effective in detoxifying antigen antibody complexes that form during allergic reactions. So you might see eosinophils elevated in the situation of an allergic reaction as well. We also have basophils. Basophils contain granules that have histamine, serotonin, bradykinin, and heparin. And so when these basophils are stimulated by immune cells, they're actually going to burst these granules and release all of these items. So they're going to be found at the site of immune responses and inflammation, and they play a really large role in both of those. We also have macrophages. They can be fixed or migratory. They are phagocytic, so they're going to engulf invaders, and they do contain toxins and enzymes to kill the invaders. Um, they also function in active adaptive immunity as antigen-presenting cells, or APCs. They're able to enhance the inflammatory response by releasing cytokines such as tumor necrosis factor or interleukin-1, and they're also active in healing. We have our white blood cells. These are our lymphocytes. So we have our B cells, which can become plasma cells and memory cells, and also our T cells, which control the immune response, cell-mediated immunity, and those are going to be our CD4, CD8, and natural killer cells. And as we know, the natural killer cells function primarily in things like viruses and cancer. So looking a little more closely at our T lymphocytes, the CD4 helper cell is going to be the master regulator of the immune system. So they play a really important role there in controlling and activating other cells. We also have the CD8 cells, which are the T cytotoxic cells. Um, the CD8 receptors actually attach to marked invaders and then kill the infected cells. 
When we're thinking about our B cells, we have plasma cells, which create antibodies that attach to the antigen to mark and or destroy it. And also the B cells, the memory B cells, that will continue to monitor for an antigen after the infection is gone. So there are a number of ways that we can have abnormal white blood cell production. We could have leukocytosis, which is increased white blood cells. We could also have leukopenia, which is an absolute decrease in white blood cells. Neutropenia, in which there's, it's called agranulocytosis, if the white blood cells are below 200 cells per microliter. And also aplastic anemia, which affects all myeloid cells. So there are also white blood cell production disorders. There are a variety of etiologies for them. Um, it could be due to infection, chemo drugs, radiation, um, splenomegaly, antibiotics, antipsychotic agents, and also just genetic. So the treatment, you're gonna treat the underlying problem, and we also have hematopoietic drugs, poetic drugs, um, such as human granulocyte colony stimulating factor. So starting off with the neoplastic disorders of blood cells, we have lymphomas, which can be both Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin, leukemias, including acute and chronic, and plasma cell dyscrasias, like multiple myeloma. So the difference between leukemia and lymphoma is really important. So as we know, white blood cells are formed and begin to differentiate in the bone marrow. So when you have a neoplasm that arises in the bone marrow, it's going to cause leukemia or a plasma cell dyscrasia, since they aren't differentiated yet. In lymphomas, um, this is a neoplasm that's arriving or arising from a lymph node or lymphoid tissue. So because the tissue is already more differentiated and more specialized, they're generally less malignant. So our first type of lymphoma is Hodgkin lymphoma. This is a specialized form in which you'll see really characteristic malignant B cells called Reed-Sternberg cells. And that's kind of the um, diagnostic identifying factor Additionally, 50% of these Reed-Sternberg cells are going to have um, Epstein-Barr virus present. So Hodgkin lymphoma arises from a single lymph node and is generally a progressive invasion of lymphoid tissue and with an eventual invasion of all tissue. Um, expected signs and symptoms, you could have fever, lymph lymphadenopathy, fatigue, and also weight loss. And the treatment is going to be chemotherapy and radiation, and it actually has a 75% cure rate, so that's really positive. It could also originate from the spleen, either lymph nodes or spleens. Non-Hodgkin lymphomas are typically associated with viruses like Epstein-Barr virus, immunosuppressants, and H. pylori infections. And there are a variety of lymphomas. You could have neoplasms of B cells, T cells, natural killer cells, any of those, and that's just going to be a proliferation of abnormal cells that arises from lymph tissue. These tend to be more common and more aggressive. So some ex expected signs and symptoms, fever, lymphadenopathy, splenomegaly, and hepatomegaly. And uh, non-Hodgkin lymphomas are also treated with chemotherapy and radiation, but the survival rates are significantly lower than they are for Hodgkin lymphoma. And they tend to, it's going to affect the BT and natural killer cells. So that's kind of the, the main distinction there. We have Hodgkin lymphoma, which is B cells, non-Hodgkin, B, T, and natural killer. So when we're looking at our leukemias, um, leukemia is effectively a diffuse replacement of bone marrow with unregulated proliferate abnormal cells. And it does cause a really high number of deaths around the world. So 
we see a lot of times a disruption of genes that would control normal blood cell development. And this could be due to both genetic and environmental factors. You can also see it occurring as secondary to chemotherapy. Some common symptoms include fatigue, weight loss, nosebleeds, pallor, bone pain, and infections. So there are a number of types. Leukemia could be acute or chronic. So in acute leukemia, it's an abnormal proliferation of immature blast cells. Whereas in chronic, it's an abnormal proliferation of well-defined cells. So you could differentiate the two, whether or not they appear differentiated or and immature. So in acute, they'd be undifferentiated and immature. And in chronic, they would be well-defined mature cells. They could also be myelogenous or lymphocytic. Um, if we're looking at myelogenous, they, they'd just be from the myeloid stem cell line. So it could be granulocytes, erythrocytes, or thrombocytes. And lymphocytic, it would be immature lymphocytes. Okay, so now moving on to plasma cell dyscrasias. Um, there are a number of possible etiologies. Once again, you could have an autoimmune condition, um, exposure to radiation, pesticides, herbicides, toxins, Agent Orange, HIV, and genetic factors. And there are several types, but the most common is multiple myeloma. This tends to be seen in older adults and men at a higher rate than women. So multiple myeloma is an abnormal B cell proliferation. So in the blood, you're going to see abnormal immune components. Um, about 80% of cases, you'll see abnormal proteins called M proteins. And you'll also see potentially Bent jones proteins, which are a lot less common, but they're more significant. Um, they're smaller more and more proliferate, so they're able to clump into the kidneys and cause renal failure. You also have hyperviscosity, which can lead to clot formation. And since the body's producing components of the immune system at a really high level, but they aren't functional, there is a high risk of infection since the normal levels of functional antibodies are going to be decreased. decreased. So in the bone marrow and multiple myeloma, you're going to see osteolytic bone lesions and also increased osteoclast activity. Um, with those increased osteoclasts, you're going to have increased bone destruction and also hypercalcemia as you break down those bones and the calcium is being freed. Some other white blood cell abnormalities, um, the condition called infectious mononucleosis, which is caused by Epstein-Barr virus. Um, it affects B cells, so it tends to either kill or take them over, and it results in heterophil antibodies, which is kind of one of the diagnostic traits. So they'll call it a monospot, and they're really just testing for heterophil antibodies for, created by those affected B cells. We also have, at the same time, CD8 cells and natural killer cells that are working really hard in the body to keep the number of heterophil-producing cells to a minimum. So you'll see the CD8 and natural killer cells working. And after a period of time, um, the virus will go dormant but remain in the body. So in individuals who become immunosuppressed, they are able to shed the virus. Another trademark um, symptom of this is going to be the downy cells. So as we know, we have those heterophil antibodies and they prompt the activation of CD8 lymphocytes that are going to keep the antibodies in order. So these CD8 lymphocytes become reactive and become downy cells. So when you see that, you're also thinking Epstein-Barr virus. There are a number of signs and symptoms. Um, a person could absolutely be asymptomatic, but you could also have fever, pharyngitis, malaise, anorexia, and chills. 
And some other important signs, posterior adenopathy, exudative tonsillitis, splenomegaly, and hepatomegaly. One of the key differentiating factors is that you'll see posterior adenopathy, which is really not particularly common in other conditions. Typically, an acute um, infection with mononucleosis lasts four to eight weeks. Um, supportive treatment is called for, lots of nutrition support and rest. And also, the individual should be removed from contact sports or really kind of physical high-risk activities because there is the risk of splenomegaly and a possible rupture in mononucleosis, which would be a life-threatening condition. So we do have a hematopoietic growth factor. So in white blood cells, this would be either filgrastim, also known as nupagen. So filgrastim is, once again, hematopoietic growth factor for white blood cells. Um, it's used to elevate neutrophil counts in patients with cancer or treat severe chronic neutropenia, but it is extremely expensive and the number one adverse side effect is bone pain. There are also thrombopoietic growth factors, um, which promote the growth of platelets, such as oprilvecin and interleukin. So these are used with myelosuppressive chemotherapy to minimize thrombocytopenia. So some adverse effects, you could have fluid retention, cardiac dysrhythmias, and also allergic reactions. So knowing that you use this with myelosuppressive therapy, chemotherapy, just to clarify, myelosuppression is defined by low red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelet counts. So moving on to the second section, disorders of red blood cells. To start off, we'll just describe the red blood cell, generally speaking. Um, the red blood cell is biconcave, and so this gives it a greater surface area for the diffusion of oxygen and carbon dioxide. It has a really unique internal structure that allows flexibility in capillaries. So there's a protein called spectrin that is responsible for this flexibility. Um, it, it allows it to move and bend as needed. So thinking about hemoglobin synthesis, red blood cells are destroyed at about 1% per day. So that's a pretty good solid rate. Um, usually destruction should be equivalent to production. So when we're looking at how they are produced, iron is going to be the central part of the oxygen transport. And is essential to make hemoglobin. So it starts with that iron, which is stored in the liver as ferritin and then used by the bone marrow to make hemoglobin. When we're thinking about them getting broken down, um, the iron from the heme is going to actually be salvaged and stored back in the liver. Um, we also have bilirubin, which will become conjugated and break down and excrete in the bile, and then the globin will be recycled. So hemoglobin has two alpha chains and two beta chains. Each protein chain holds one iron-containing heme group, so oxygen binds to those heme groups, meaning that each molecule of hemoglobin can carry four molecules of oxygen. Hemoglobin does account for about 90% of the weight of red blood cells, and they contain a wild amount of hemoglobin molecules. When we are oxygenated, that gives that 
blood, the, the color red, um, and the iron and oxygen result in the hemoglobin volume in that molecule itself. So when we're thinking about red blood cell projection, it's called erythropoiesis, the process of making red blood cells. So we start with a decreased blood oxygen level um, that could lead to tissue hypoxia. So this prompts the kidneys to secrete a hormone called erythropoietin. And this will result in the bone marrow being stimulated and the creation of new red blood cells. In adults, this red blood cell production happens in bones such as the sternum, vertebrae, ribs, and pelvis. And when the bone marrow creates new red blood cells, it could release immature red blood cells that still have nucleuses, so they're nucleated. It could be reticulocytes, which are red blood cells that still have their endoplasmic reticulum, so reticulocyte, reticulum. Or it could be mature red blood cells. So when there's a really overwhelming need for blood cells, the bone marrow might release nucleated immature red blood cells or even less mature reticulocytes. So the lifespan of a red blood cell is about 120 days before they become damaged and break down. So this kind of occurs. The cell membrane is going to become weakened. And since red blood cells do not have a nucleus, they are unable to make new membrane components. So eventually the red blood cells will break down as they squeeze through the capillaries, usually of the spleen. Most red blood cells are going to be processed in the spleen. So they're going to break in the capillaries of the spleen, as we said, with that breakdown of the cell membrane over time. They'll then become engulfed by white blood cells in the spleen or the liver, potentially the bone marrow or the lymph nodes. And the hemoglobin is going to be processed into bilirubin. When the processing immediately occurs, it produces unconjugated bilirubin, but that is actually toxic to the body. And so one of the jobs of the liver is to conjugate it. So the liver is going to connect that hemoglobin to gluconeride. And gluconeride is going to make it conjugated bilirubin, which can be excreted in the bile. And so when this doesn't happen and you have unconjugated bilirubin in the blood, it leads to bilirubinemia, which results in jaundice or that yellow color to the skin. So some values to reflect red blood cells, um, you have cell count, which is just the number of cells. The percentage of reticulocytes is going to reflect the rate of production, and that's the number of circulating immature red blood cells. So it's usually about 1%. If it's above 1%, um, it, it's indicating that the bone marrow is getting signals to increase. To increase the rate of production, however, it's not necessarily able to meet it, so there's increased need. Um, the hematocrit indicates the percentage of red blood cells to plasma in the blood. And we also have hemoglobin, of course. So some metrics of which to evaluate red blood cells. We have the mean corp corpuscular volume, MCV, which reflects the volume of the cell. So this is how we distinguish that. We have microcytic, which are abnormally small cells, normocytic, which are normally sized cells, and also macrocytic, so that cell is going to be really large. We also have the mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration, which is the amount of hemoglobin in each cell. This is reflected in the idea of chromic, since it's color. So you could have normochromic, which would be that healthy red color due to the hemoglobin, 
and oxygen, or we could have hypochromic in which they're going to be pale. So this is particularly important when we're talking about anemia. So there are a number of types of anemia. You could have blood loss anemia, which is just kind of that loss of volume. Um, we could have hemolytic anemias like hereditary spherocytosis, sickle cell disease, or thalassemia. You could also have deficient red blood cell production, such as in iron deficiency anemia, megaloblastic, which is either vitamin B12 deficiency or folic acid deficiency. There's also aplastic anemia, anemia and anemia of chronic disease. So in blood loss anemia, this could either be an internal or external blood loss, um, but you have the potential to lose up to 50% of your red blood cell mass without signs or symptoms, which would appear at around when um, your hemoglobin is less than 8 grams per deciliter. When you have an acute loss, the cells are going to be normocytic and normochromic since the body hasn't had time to respond yet. However, chronic loss would lead to iron deficiency anemia, which would cause microcytic hypochromic cells. When we're looking at those hemolytic anemias, um, we have hereditary spherocytosis, and this is caused by a spectrin deficiency. So if you remember, spectrin is going to be that really flexible protein that allows the red blood cells to bend and move through dynamic capillaries. So when you have a deficiency of spectrin, the cell is going to lose that and be abnormally rigid, and so it'll eventually fold in on itself and lose that membrane surface, so it'll be unable to function since the hemoglobin will be unable to pick up oxygen. We also have acquired hemolytic anemias. So these could be caused by drugs, toxins, or just be idiopathic. Um, there's also the option of antibodies from the mother causing hemolytic disease of the newborn. And this occurs when you have an RH mother and an RH positive baby. So hemolytic disease of the newborn, RH negative mother, RH positive baby. So when we see hemolytic anemias, this is going to be a destruction of the red blood cells. So you're going to have decreased ca capacity for oxygen transport. When hemolysis occurs in the vascular space, you're going to have hemoglobinemia causing the plasma to turn red. Since it's not being broken down in the normal way, these components aren't going to get processed, such as in the spleen and liver. Um, we also have hemoglobinuria in which the urine becomes Coca-Cola colored. So our two types of inherited hemoglobinopathies, other than our hereditary spherocytosis, are sickle cell disease and thalassemia. Um, sickle cell disease is present in African Americans. Thalassemia is more common in people of Mediterranean descent and is the defect of the A or B chains in the hemoglobin. So in sickle cell disease, this is going to be a mutation in the beta chains of the hemoglobin. When hemoglobin becomes deoxidative, the beta cells are going to link together and form long protein rods, also known as sickles. So generally, a normal beta chain has glutamic acid and a sickle cell has valine instead. So instead of functioning normally, when the cell becomes deoxygenated, the beta chains are going to link together and form that sickle shape, which occurs particularly often when cold or stressed or any other situation like that. So sometimes when it occurs less frequently, the, the cells are going to return to normal when they're properly oxygenated and the person is warm and everything like that. But after multiple occurrences of this, the cells will begin to clump and break down. And at that point, it is irreversible and it will cause clots and block vessels and result in 
tissue ischemia, which then naturally would exacerbate the problem and make it kind of a positive feedback cycle. Since these cells aren't rigid and don't bend easily, they're going to block capillaries. This leads to acute pain, infarctions that can cause chronic damage to the liver, spleen, heart, kidneys, eyes, and bones. Also pulmonary infarctions like acute chest syndrome and cerebral infarctions like strokes. Sickle cells are also going to be more likely to be destroyed in the vascular space, which leads to jaundice. So it's really important to keep individuals like this with well oxygenated and warm. Some symptoms of hemolytic anemias, um, you'll see muscle weakness, pale skin and gums, tachycardia, tachypnea, fatigue, headaches, enlarged liver and spleen, jaundice, and dark urine. So now moving on to our last few types of anemia, we have iron deficiency anemia, and this could be caused by a dietary deficiency, bleeding, or even in just increased demand. And in iron deficiency anemia, you're going to see um, microcytic and hypochromic red blood cells since there isn't enough to go around. You'll also see poikilocytosis, in which the cells have irregular shapes, and anisocytosis, which means they have unequal size. There are a couple reasons for this if we think about this. The iron and the hemoglobin that iron contributes are making up the majority of that red blood cell mass. So if you don't have that present, the size is going to decrease, causing that microcytic cell size. Additionally, with that oxygen, we're going to have pale cells since the, um, the cell isn't able to carry them in the hemoglobin like normal. So you'll have the hypochromic cells. With the concept of anisocytosis, um, so erythropoiesis in iron deficiency is going to result in this anisocytosis. Since there is a limited amount of iron in the body, each developing erythrocyte is going to be trying to grab and obtain whatever iron is available. Some would get a lot and some would get a little. So this causes the red blood cells to vary in size based on the mass of that iron. You'll also generally see a low erythrocytes count since the body doesn't have the iron to support the growth of all the cells. We also have megaloblastic anemias that result in the increases in the mean corpuscular volume. So we have a folic acid deficiency, um, vitamin B12 deficiency, pernicious anemia, and malabsorption. So in pernicious anemia, which is a vitamin B12 deficiency, you're going to see that megaloblastic anemia. So the erythrocytes are going to be large, typically with an oval shape. You also have the poikilocytosis and teardrop shapes, and the neutrophils are going to be hypersegmented. So the reason for this, and you'll also see this with folic acid deficiencies, um, folic acid and B12 are required for cells to grow and divide, and so when you don't have enough of it, the cells are going to grow really large and not be able to divide since they don't have those necessary components. So the neutrophils, you'll have three to five segments instead of just one because it's continually growing and trying to divide and unable to. And we'll just see that um, those excessively large macrocytic cells. We also have chronic disease anemias under the category of deficient red blood cell production. So they could be from an inflammatory process, causing a lack of resources and redistribution of resources. Um, 
You could also have it from renal failure. This would happen when the kidneys um, are are not able to function properly. The um, the kidney cells don't function, and so if you're looking to stimulate blood cell development, you're not going to be able to have that erythropoiesis without erythropoietin, which is secreted by the kidneys. That would make sense. We also have aplastic anemia, which involves abnormal stem cells. So your bone marrow is going to be replaced by a fatty substitute. So you're going to have abnormal stem cells. You'll see things like low white blood cells, platelets, and red blood cells since it affects all of them. And this could be caused by radiation, chemicals, or toxins. And the treatment for that, the only option is a bone marrow transplant. You could also see um, malabsorption. Um, this is, would be when the stomach is unable to absorb these nutrients. So that could be surgical, dietary, such as alcohol use, neoplasms, inflammation, H. pylori infections, and also acid-blocking drugs. So if you're looking for solutions to vitamin B12 deficiency and pernicious anemia, um, injections will be better than PO, especially if you have problems with your GI tract. And otherwise, pernicious anemia is a result of that lacking intrinsic factor from the parietal cells of the stomach. So administering um, B12PO is not going to help you at all. So some symptoms of deficient red blood cell production will have pallor, weakness, angina, angina um, confusion, sweating, and tachycardia. So the pallor will be from the anemia, um, you're not well oxygenated, your cells aren't doing well. Um, the weakness, you'll have a lack of oxygen to tissue, so they, you won't have enough ATP to stimulate things, and that's the same with the angina and the confusion, lacks of, lack of oxygen to the heart and to the brain. Um, the sweating and tachycardia are the result of the act, activation of the sympathetic nervous system to try to overcome these problems. So really quickly looking at blood types, we have A, B, and O groups. So Blood types are named for the type of antigen that they have. So type A blood is going to have A antigen and B antibodies. Um, type B will have B antigen. Type AB will have antigens to A and B and no antibodies. So if you kind of just think of it as the opposite. And um, type O blood is going to have neither A nor B, but it will have antibodies to both of them since it doesn't have them. So this is important when we're thinking about pregnancy. So when you have an Rh negative mother, that means she does not have the Rh antigen. So when she has, she gets pregnant with a baby that could potentially be Rh positive, it's possible that she's going to develop antibodies to that Rh positive blood, which is problematic. And so there's a medication called Rogam, which is an anti-antibody that is administered to the mother at, um, I believe, 28 weeks and then also again at 72 hours after delivery. And while it likely wouldn't cause problems during the first pregnancy, it absolutely would for the second and that can be life-threatening for children because the mother's immune system will kill them. There are some hematopoietic growth factors that can be administered. Um, for red blood cells, we have epoetin alpha, which is called epigen or procrit. Um, it would be given for hematocrit below 35%, but it's important to note that you must have adequate iron and folic acid and B12 or it won't work. 
because you can't produce things if you don't have the ingredients. So it would be used for chronic renal failure, chemotherapy, and anemia in patients that are facing surgery. And an adverse effect would be hypertension, so you'd want to monitor and ensure that's controlled before use. Um, some administration considerations, the vial should not be shaken. Um, Epoetin alpha cannot be mixed with other drugs and it sh should be stored at a relatively cool temperature. Um, well, two degrees Celsius to eight degrees Celsius. So in the refrigerator, it should not be frozen and it should be given subcutaneously typically. For anemia, you could also have um, oral iron replacement. Um, which is called IV iron dextrin, um, but it does have a high incidence of anaphylactic reactions. So when someone is dealing with that, diff um, that anemia, so we can give the iron replacement oral, just like we talked about. Um, we could also give vitamin B12, which is, as we know, essential for DNA synthesis in all cells. So you could give it PO, IM, IV, or intranasal, but um, IM is one of the most common forms. Um, they also would give folic acid. So once again, this is essential for DNA synthesis and cell division, and that's going to be an oral replacement.